As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to On Farm. Thank you for joining us. I am Anna Davis and first of all I'm just going to apologise. I'm full of the cold so excuse me if I sound a bit croaky. Um, I am actually astonished that we haven't covered this subject on the podcast before today. We are focusing on what is many a farmer's favourite subject, the weather, for the fourth episode in our series in partnership with the Cooperative Farming Umbrella Organisation, SAOS. It's a five-part series looking at different aspects of climate change, the wider Scottish and UK commitments to reach carbon net zero within the next 25 years, and how this will affect all of us um, in Scottish farming. Previous episodes have looked at supply change, production and processes and other things, but today it's the climate and weather. We've got another brilliant and forward-thinking panel assembled, so I shall let them introduce themselves before we get started. My name is David Aglain from Balburnie Home Farms in Fife. I'm farms manager here. We are a 1,200 hectare mixed farm, livestock, vegetables and combinable cropping. Graham Lofthouse from Bankhouse Farm at Stow uh, in the Scottish Borders. Um, we're a small livestock farm. We farm 113 hectares of our own and we have another 34 hectares that we rent on seasonal lets. I'm George Noble, uh, project manager from SOS. I'm at the northern outpost um, of SOS. I live up in Fraserburgh in Aberdeenshire. My responsibility really extends to Recently, all things data and digital, uh, my responsibility for the rollout of um, our subsidiary organisation, Smart Rural. Excellent. Thank you very much, all three of you. But yeah, we, as in the On Farm podcast, have produced now over 50 episodes. And I genuinely think this might be the first one where we have talked about the weather. Can you believe that? (laughs) Um, I guess we've maybe made a brief reference to it, but um, things like COVID and the cancellation of shows, etc., etc., have dominated the topics. And we haven't gone into very much detail about the weather. But I've got a whole host of questions because I'm actually quite intrigued to talk to all three of you about this and and about how people are addressing the, the weather situation for want of a better word, that that we find ourselves in and how that relates to climate change. Now, each of you is relatively young, so I'm not going to ask you to to go back too far. But um, Graham, if I could perhaps start with you, in a kind of anecdotal sense, what have you noticed over the last perhaps 10, 15, 20 years, if you can remember back that far, um, in terms of, of how the weather patterns have changed and impacted upon you in, in your farming life? It's probably quite been quite substantial, I would say. Uh, we'll go back as far as 20 years, Anna. We'll go as far as 20 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably been working at home for about eight years at that point, I suppose. 
we seem to have much more steady weather patterns at that point, I'd say, in time. Our land uh, is an upland farm, but uh, we have some low-lying land right next to the Gala Water, which is a tributary of the River Tweed. We're certainly seeing more regular flooding, uh, a much higher water table, certainly through the winter time, which is having a significant impact on productivity of that lower-lying ground. And we're also seeing points where we're having to house stock um, for adverse, adverse weather situations, which we weren't before. And I'd certainly say that's been an increasing uh, aspect in the last 10 years. So having to mitigate those effects has, has become a more regular uh, part of our sort of management of the farm. And I think also it's having an impact, sort of ground saturation and uh, compaction of the land. Uh, obviously, we're a paddock rotational grazing system here, so we do have heavy levels of stock and density on land at a point in time, not so much heavy machinery. Yeah, looking at varying aspects of drainage and also obviously having to think about changing our grassland type and, and sward management that we've got in place. And, and that's why I was so much looking forward to today because um, whilst we're, we're all going to be talking about positive stuff, there is so much more to it than I think many people realise. And that's what I think we want to do is to kind of really get into to some of the nitty gritty. Um, David, from, from your perspective, what have you noticed over the last 10, 20 years in terms of, of changes uh, w- within farming and, and the weather that impacts on that? The first comment I think, Graham, is that we're no longer young. We're just relatively young. So we've, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a new age group. I've never had to tick that box yet before. Yeah, no, we've seen a difference. Uh, I couldn't tell you whether the climate is changing or is it just a blip in in natural weather patterns. You know, our our lives given in history are very short. But what we what we tend to see here at Balburnie is that the it's very intense weather patterns so it's either really really wet or it's just really really dry six to eight week patterns is what we sort of work on is that's what i observe we don't we don't get this little bit of damp or a little bit of dry it's all or nothing now and that makes it really hard to cope with we're, we're trying to change our farming practices to, to to suit but much the same as graham it's just it's a similar type of problems that we see higher water table drainage is having to work harder um cropping types that we've used in the past and our grass as well it's it's going to have to change we're going to have to change what we do to to work with this i think would you consider yourself to be somebody who has quite a detailed interest in the weather and and do you record it um in any kind of sort of official way we don't i think we used to um i don't it's it's interesting i I mean i've access to local uh weather records a friend nearby he his family and farm have recorded them back for uh, decades and so a quick phone call can soon refer back to to what actually happened even though they're on the other side of the valley but as I said before we do see it changing and we've just got to learn to manage with it I don't know how much seeing what the weather was like 20 years ago really can help us now because we're not farming 20 years ago we're managing the businesses now and we've just got to deal with what's in front of us. That's a very good point, actually, David. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's about now and it's about trying as far as possible to look to the future and work out what's coming and, and again, how to, to mitigate it. So, um, George, I, I hadn't been meaning to leave you out. You, you're out and about meeting farmers all the time. Are you picking up similar stuff that, that David and Graham have been telling us about some of the challenges that are being faced? And, and what, what are people doing about it? 
I mean, I think I can attest to what both Graham and David said. Um, I think the, the most common sentiment that I've been picking up is that weather events appear to be more extreme in nature, are relatively predictable seasons of the past, are no longer predictable as such. And then potentially that uh, you know, weather's more localised than ever. You know, those extremes are happening on a more geographical, a, a tighter geographic area than perhaps in the past and I think at the moment yeah mitigation strategies I think that is very much dependent upon who you talk to how proactive they are with respective actions that you, you may take but um, you know one thing is clear that more farmers that I do talk to are more interested in the weather not they've been disinterested in the past but there's just a real interest in weather and in climate and the impact that it might have not necessarily through choice they're they're being forced to be more interested because they're having to deal with more and more unexpected events i guess we're not really here today to talk about mitigating climate change as such because we've kind of covered that in other episodes but i suppose what we are here to talk about is how behavior and farming practices need and can change in order to mitigate the effects of climate change as in the weather can you tell us uh, kind of briefly how smart rural and, as you mentioned, data and technology and innovation are making a contribution to, to helping farmers with some of the challenges that they're facing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a practical example could be, you know, we've, we've just, um, we're in the process of deploying our sensor technology on uh, three demonstration farms as part of a Scottish government funded digital farm project. And each of the farms were issued with weather stations so wireless uh, weather stations relatively cost effective can be deployed uh, quite literally anywhere uh, we've also been deploying um, soil moisture sensors and uh, ultrasonic sensors that can be located above streams above rivers that can give indications with respect to any change in that that river so you know we do now through the kind of internet of things technologies now have a I suppose, a, a suite of tools that can be deployed at a farm level. A, to give farmers more data um, with respect to what's happening in their own farm, but also to actively involve farmers, perhaps as citizen scientists, to collect data that can be fed into national data sets that, for example, can um, provide you know, more information with respect to flood potential and how government can respond to that at a downstream level. So I think the new technologies that we have, the data that we can collect uh, is going to become more and more important as we move on, not only to farmers, but also to government. It's kind of a case of forewarned is forearmed in a way by making more use of sensor technology and other innovations. You've got a higher ability or stronger ability to predict what's coming and do something about it. I know that's probably a very, very simplified way of describing it, but is that the premise it, it kind of overall? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Anna. Uh, um, you know, for example, you look at um, SEPA. So they've got, I think it's around about 400 yeah, measurement stations on rivers across Scotland. So if you can actually increase the granularity of that, you can actually deploy sensors on farm to measure water levels it just leads to an increased granularity of that data that can feed into a bigger picture yeah so 
Graham, on a kind of day-to-day on-farm level, you mentioned that flooding is, is probably your biggest challenge. What exactly does that mean to you for farming now? And what what are you doing to, to try and overcome it? And I suppose you can't overcome flooding, but what, what, what how are you having to change your farming practices to continue farming profitably despite this challenge that you face? Yeah, I think the flooding is the biggest challenge uh, for us. Um, so obviously with livestock, uh, it's always the danger of livestock being trapped or swept away. And we do have quite a stretched out farm for all that we're a small farm. We cover nearly seven kilometres in distance uh, and the gala water runs through almost all of that through the, the, the valley bottom. So it's getting crossing points in place. So we're looking at actually putting bridges in to get from one side of the river to the other so that we can have escape routes for the livestock. Uh, We formerly had a very simple escape route, which was the Waverley Rail Line came through our farm and we used to own the railway line. Uh, So we were the, at that point, we were the second largest owner of railway line from Edinburgh to Tweed Bank, uh, but the small, second smallest farm on the line. So obviously uh, livestock went on the railway line at that point in time and they were high and dry and safe and it didn't make much difference. Uh, so now we have to be continually vigilant to be able to remove stock uh, if we think there's going to be a flood situation coming. Also from the sort of management side of the land, um, need to think about actually what crops you're going to put where, when you're going to plough, if you're going to plough. So pretty much dropped ploughing out the system altogether at the moment. And I don't see that coming back either for other reasons, uh, mostly to do with soil health. But um, I think direct drilling is a much better option for us, whether that be for forage crops or for direct grass re- reseeds going back in. Um Holds, holds the soil together, holds holds everything together and you don't lose it down the river, basically. Um, George touched on, uh, mentioned SEPA there as well. So uh, having to have a much closer relationship with SEPA than we did do in the past. And that's mostly to do with riverbank ma- maintenance and uh, erosion of riverbanks. It is a challenge and obviously they have the regulations to adhere to as well, but we have to manage the land as best we can to protect our asset and our big asset is soil. So losing a lot of soil is not a great option for us at all either. Yeah, so I suppose you've got three things there really that you've got to juggle. One is, I suppose, safety and keeping your livestock safe and alive. The other is is feeding and being able to grow what you need and enough of it. Of it. And then the third is, is the land and soil management to, I suppose, give yourself the strong footing for, for the future. Would, would that be true? Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I probably didn't mention it so much, but it's it's actually looking at actually the impact that saturation has on, on, on the capability of grass to grow. So if you've got severe water logging, you're having a huge impact on, on grass growth. You're also pulling the temperature down. So in the wintertime, like we've just had just now, I haven't got the figures in front of me at the moment, but last year I did start keeping a record of rainfall and it was more from the grass growing aspect. Uh, so as a, as a sort of rough idea, from April till June, we had no rainfall last year. We had zero rainfall from May till the beginning of June. And then in June, when we were making silage, we got 225 mils of rain within a 48-hour period. And then uh, when you got to October, November, December time, we nearly got a foot of rain every month. So that's that's astronomical. I mean, that's huge. That's, that's nothing like what we were getting before. And then when we got into January, we've had a month of snow cover in January from either a six inches to a foot of snow cover in January 
and we've had temperatures as low as minus 17, and I think we had three or four at minus 14, uh, which had a massive impact on fodder beet production uh, or utilisation on the farm as well. So, you know, all those things are major, major effects, and that has a knock-on effect, as, as David well knows as well, and George does too, you know, for crop growth in the spring. If you've pulled temperature down so much and you've got saturation, it takes a very long time for temperature to start rising and for root structure to start actually mobilising itself and getting working again. Yeah, um, Graham, George mentioned earlier about farmers as scientists, and we've done a number of episodes lately with the Morden Institute. So I'm intrigued, you know, from a kind of grassland management point of view, how much interaction would you have with scientists in terms of experts on, you know, grass varieties and that kind of thing? Because presumably that's something that you're looking at to, to have the grass that's got resilience. It's actually something I've just been discussing with. Uh, I do a small consultancy business and of two other people that I sort of work with on a regular basis. And we've just been discussing this recently. I actually don't think there's enough in place. I think the actual way that the grassland evaluation is currently recommended and set up is purely based around yield. It doesn't look actually at, it does look at winter hardiness, um, but it doesn't look at uh, how early in the season a grass would grow. It doesn't actually look at uh, the temperature that it would actually start growing at. And I've had a big thing for a while that I think if we could actually breed grass varieties which would grow at half a degree to a degree lower than they currently do, it could have a significant impact on grass and production in the UK. I think also I've been looking at, well, for myself, I've been looking particularly at festuloliums, which are a, a tall fescue cross perennial ryegrass, which have a much better ability to cope uh, with extreme conditions. So either extreme wet or extreme heat. And, and that's something we didn't really mention earlier is, uh, you know, having drought has been as big an impact as anything. So, I mean, like last year when we had those months of dry, it's immediately impacting on feed supply coming into winter. Um, but, yeah, I think there could be a lot more done research-wise. I don't have a lot of contact with uh, researchers. There doesn't seem to be the drive out there currently to look at it. And I think it would be a huge return on investment if it was actually actively looked at. But I think it needs a, a complete rejig of how it is currently evaluated. And I think it needs some more stringent uh, testing regimes and, and place testing. Some of the evaluation sites are not sites that I would see as being uh, adversely weather affected at all. I mean, some of them are down the south of England and we're getting grass varieties recommended in, in Scotland out of the south of England. It's nowhere near it. And even, even the test site in Aber up in Aberdeenshire, it's still coastal. It's still got that effect of being coastal. You're not looking at, 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 you know, extreme temperatures at all. I think a lot of the stuff that you get out of Czechoslovakia and, you know, the, uh, Eastern Europe is much better stuff because it's, it's bred in cold, cold climate conditions. So uh, who, who do you hope is listening then to what you've just said? Uh, who's got the ability to actually do something about that? Well, probably Scottish government's got the biggest effect. I think if Scottish government actually uh, came out and listened to some of the farmers who are actively looking at this kind of stuff, and understood what we're actually trying to achieve from it. And I think actually it comes down to, excuse the pun, but grassroots. It comes down to grassroots level of what do we need on the ground and what are we seeing and what are, what are, what are we needing to achieve from it? Yeah, excellent. 
so David, you you were nodding very sagely in the background there. We, we've talked about a lot of stuff, so I, I'll forgive you if you can't remember it all. But um, perhaps first of all, talking about science and the connection between farming and science. What, what are your views on that one? Well, I agreed a lot with what Graham had to say, but I just make one, uh, well, several points, but essentially follow the money. If you look at where why research is done, it's generally individuals or organisations having a vested interest in a profit in it. And I think personally as an industry, it's the farmers that need to be driving this. I'm not necessarily agree that we need to go to government. It'd be nice if government came and helped, but I think the change will come faster if we drive this as farmers collectively. Everything we've done, all the problems that Graham alluded to about things not growing quick enough in the season, they're tested in the wrong places. You know, we've been able to cure these problems with a chemical or fertilizer out of a bag in the past. And it's worked for us to a certain extent, but that we haven't really got the solutions to it now. That's not working economically. So we need to start finding the solutions for ourselves that, that solve these problems. The people who are going to benefit from these changes the most and the research in the correct direction the most are going to be us farmers, not the large corporations that are effectively living off us and have been for generations now. And that, that's, that's the way I feel about it. David, just going back a little bit, you know, we've heard from Graham about some of the things that he's put in place to try, you know, building bridges, for example, but to try and overcome some of the, the, the weather related challenges. Uh, what about you? You're obviously facing yeah, wet weather challenges, but also, as you've mentioned, drought challenges. What's been changing in terms of your farming practices to try and get the better of this, as it were? We've changed quite a lot over the last few years. Uh, on the livestock side, we've started mob grazing um, with a view to building up the organic matter in the soil and the root resilience that's in the ground for the plants, which should, in theory, uh, give us a longer grazing season. On the arable side, as many people know, we've been experimenting with direct drilling for the last five or six years. We are seeing some fields that used to flood, and indeed they still do flood in the winter, They're uh, just by their location, really. Um, but we find that they tend to dry out quicker in the spring, markedly, probably a week to ten days earlier than they used to dry out in the spring. It comes down to moving less soil, essentially, with us. You move the soil, you upset the structure, whether it's grassland or arable land, it all has the same impact. And if we can move the soil left, we can leave it alone, we can build the natural structure in the soil, which allows drainage to occur far more effectively, which allows the crops to grow more earlier in the season. The soil won't get quite so cold in the winter, particularly if we keep them covered with cover crops. Yeah, so you'll probably both know a farmer from Perthshire, Alex Brewster. He said in a recent podcast, he said it's basically six inches of matter that keeps us all alive. And so the more healthy we can keep it, the more healthy we will be, Um, which kind of sums it up, I think. Um, I suppose, you know, none of us have a crystal ball, Um but but Graham, if 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 we were interviewing or chatting to you again in another ten years time um, about the weather, um, what do you what do you realistically think we'll be saying in ten years time? I I don't know. I am in the same boat as David. Is is it climate change? I I believe it is probably climate change, but um, it might be just 
whole cycle of, of how things have evolved over time as well. Weather patterns may be changing slightly. Not sure. I think it's in in the hands of the farmer again. It's back, if, if we're talking about farmers just in general, it's back in the hands of the farmer. We have to operate in the conditions and the environment we have, and we have to make it work to the best and, and to the greatest advantage we can achieve. <clears throat> and that might involve changes in farming practice. It might involve changes in grassland varieties, cereal varieties, the livestock we actually farm, the type of farming we operate. It might, you know, and I think as farmers... In general, we are quite adept at change. We generally find a way to make it work. I think we're, we're quite good at doing that. Um, and there's a lot of guys like David is a great example of someone who's always sort of pushing the boundaries of looking for something new and, and innovative and something that will, will give his farming business the greatest advantage. And I think that's that's what we have to try and do. You can't stand still. And I do think in the UK, we have been a little bit guilty of standing still at times. Um, and sometimes we do go out there saying, oh, God, we're, we're in trouble. Help. Put our hand out. We need a help. We need support. We have to make sure that we are resilient businesses. We have to have a resilient business built up. And that can either be on your own as a business or as a collaboration with other businesses. And that's where I see it going, is that we will collaborate to a greater level uh, with other businesses. And that might be arable and livestock together, or, or livestock on their own, or arable on their own, whichever. But I think that has to be the way forward. And, and that's the way that we will always adapt and improve our businesses. George, I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to ask you an even more difficult question. We have net zero target in 2045. Assuming we hit that and we're talking to each other in 2045, what do you think we'll be saying then about the weather, but also about the way in which innovation and technology is is assisting the farming sector in this regard? When it comes to the weather, I wish I could have a crystal ball to see what's going to happen um, in 2045. You know, who, who knows? Um, there's so many different scenarios being postulated by various scientists. And you don't know if there's going to be these tipping points and things are going to accelerate or going to stabilise. So when it comes to weather, I would love to have that crystal ball to move forward. But um, thinking about um, the, the role of technology in that, I think that... Um, Hopefully, we will, I suppose, as an industry, maybe have successfully adapted the right tools and technologies to evolve our systems such that, you know, we're, we're still, you know, successful food producers in the world and we are producing food that um, is still demanded by the supply chain and we are uh, still a, a thriving food producing nation. I think that's got to be one of the litmus tests, you know, yes, we're doing um, good things for the environment. Yes, we are a sustainable, resilient industry that is climate friendly, but we're doing that whilst we're also producing food that the world demands. And I think, I think for me, that's going to be incredibly important that you know we're able to reconcile all those all those things. You know, produce food, do it profitably, and do it sustainably. And we are availing ourselves of all the the latest technologies to do that. Now, we're never sure because it's not possible to get the full breakdown exactly who our listeners are. We're fairly sure that a, ch a decent chunk of them are farmers. 
but we're also fairly sure that a decent chunk are not farmers. They're probably rural people who want to know more about the countryside and are fascinated by the countryside. If you were talking to that latter group and give them kind of one message from today, what do you think you would say to them? I think we need their we need their help and backing and support. We know that the, the weather climate is changing. It's different to what Graham and I, when we were young loons, farming is a long term business. We are not able to turn round and and change what we do overnight. The results take years to to show themselves. As an industry, we are changing. They may not see the changes straight away. It may be five, ten years before we start to see real tangible benefits coming from this, but they'll start to see changes then, which will feed into their lifestyles and the, the food that they buy and eat and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's a long-term process. So be patient and support us, I think, and we'll always be here in one shape or another. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, so, again, just to put you on the spot one further time, David, you said you need help, you know, you, you, you want support. What, what would be one simple kind of most obvious thing for people to do in order to demonstrate that support? I think certainly with the way our business is going now, I think one thing would really bolster us would be to be start buying local. I mean, I know a lot of people do try and buy local produce, but I think that can really drive change quicker, shorten the supply chain by doing that. And more money gets back to the primary producer and other businesses in between and, if there's money there, we can drive change an awful lot faster. What's holding it up just now is, is just economics. Yes, yeah, totally agree. Graham, a slightly different question for you. Apologies, because you've probably been preparing your answer for that one. Oh, don't do that. I'm, I've, got, I've got a pen out in front of me and I was trying to write down what I was going to say. I'll let you give me two answers if you like. First of all, though, the farming audience, farmers who are listening to this, what's your message to them? What's my message to farmers about the the weather? <laughs> Hope for the best. Because, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't do a lot about the weather. We've just got to get on with it. Um, I think the big thing for all farmers is, and we've kept going over this, is adapting. You have to look for the positives. And there are positives, like I hate to say at times, but actually the dry weather in the summertime and the drought conditions have countered what the damage is that the wet weather has done in the wintertime quite often. You're getting a whole lot of soil improvement conditions going on there. You just have to get a plant that operates in those conditions. We have to, we have to link up with science, like you were saying earlier. We have to join up with scientists and we have to drive as David has said it is about farmers and the co-op like you mentioned earlier that I'm involved with like the BMR that's a big factor that we could do we could be a cooperative which has a bunch of farmers who have got a similar goal or objective and we could actually probably put the money into the pot from the individuals that would facilitate doing that work for ourselves and if government was to come in and support that, that would make a huge impact. But it's about the thing of going together, not going alone. And it's for the greater benefit of everyone. And I'll, I'll skip on to your, your previous question, if you like, that you gave David that I was thinking I was all prepared for, is that I think farmers, we've got to be in tune with the climate and the environment. Because a healthy soil, climate and environment are generally all in healthy conditions to be very productive farmers. I don't think most of us as farmers are out there trying to inadvertently pollute or do damage in any way at all, because generally that has a negative impact on what we are trying to achieve. 
Mm. It's all about working with the environment. And I think more and more of us are coming round to that all the time. Thank you so much again to farmers David Aglin and Graham Lofthouse and to George Noble, SOS Data and Digital Project Manager. As with so much in life, the key message on here seems to be keep a close eye on what's happening and be responsive and adaptable. Just to remind you, this has been episode four in our climate change series with SOS. So you can go back through the on-farm feed if you want to catch up with previous discussions on climate change and supply chains, how it affects processes and systems on farm and much else besides. Uh, You can also find in the feed um, an episode uh, about rock on soils, which is a really innovative and cutting edge project. Um, where farmers and scientists are working together. It's um, a project that's being run by the Scottish Organic Producers Association alongside Abertay University and other um, university scientists looking at whether spreading crushed rock onto agricultural soils can actively capture carbon out of the atmosphere. So uh, real potential opportunities there and another episode that's looking at climate change. Um, But I think that's about it for today. Um, Thank you, as always, for listening. We couldn't do it without you. Hopefully you know where we are now. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Instagram at on underscore farm UK. We'd love to know your thoughts um, on any future topics that we could cover. And um, we would really, really love if you would share the podcast concept with friends and relatives who perhaps haven't discovered it yet. As we do every day, we like to thank people who've shared us on social media. So today the shout outs go to Dr. Helena Simmons, the Angus and Dundee Geosciences Society, Kathleen Russell and Abertay University uh, and plenty of others. Um, But word of mouth recommendations um, are usually what gets us more listeners um, and it's it's a brilliant way to, to grow and share the podcast. So as I've said before, please, please do share with friends and family. We really value the fact that you listen um, and hopefully you value the fact that we are here to tell and share really valuable rural stories. Um, It really helps us um, if we can all bang the drum, even just a little bit. The On Farm podcast tells rural stories, as you know, and is made by our team here at Seen and Heard. That's the PR and marketing agency that my co-host Monty and I run together. We offer services from branding and web building to social media management, media relations... And, of course, podcast production and training. That is me for today, I think. Um, But uh, we will see you next time.